Welcome to Being a Life Sciences Leader podcast. With a bird's eye view of the life sciences industry, Life Sciences Pennsylvania President and CEO, Chris Molyneux, joins Rachel Bushy, partner and chair of the Health Sciences Department at Troutman Pepper, to welcome life sciences leaders who give insights into the complex and high-risk world of pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, medical devices, diagnostics, and the services that support them. Here, we learn what it means to be a life sciences leader. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast, Being a Life Sciences Leader. I'm Chris Molyneux. I'm the president and CEO of Life Sciences Pennsylvania, and it's my pleasure to open up this podcast today with my co-host, Rachel Bushy, who is a partner and the chair of the Health Sciences Department at Troutman Pepper. Rachel, welcome back. Thank you. And our guest today, Bryant Lim. Bryant is the Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Idera Pharmaceuticals. Bryant, welcome to you as well. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Rachel, you want to give some welcoming remarks and introduce our, our guest? Sure. Thank you so much. So, Bryant, we are so excited to have you here today. Bryant is currently the Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Idera Pharmaceuticals. So why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. Uh, so I have... Um, I've been at the company for coming up on four years, and I have responsibilities for all the legal functions of the company. Um, I'm also serving as the secretary to our board of directors, um, which is a, you know, purely a sort of a corporate governance uh, matter in which we make sure that the directors have what they need for purposes of um, our overall corporate governance. I also have responsibility for regulatory and quality functions at the company. So we have obviously with being as regulated a business as we have, we need to make sure that we're doing things both in the right way, but also make sure that it's strategic as it relates to our regulatory uh, pathway to approval. So those are all sort of the functions that, that I have at the company right now. Also, I get to serve on the leadership team of the company with uh, five other great um, and terrific leaders in our business. Well, it's great to have another lawyer. You're our first our first legal <laughs> guest um, to be here today. And, and one of the biggest complaints of us lawyers often is um, we're not practical or they just look at us as SG&A. How do you make yourself <laughs> integral to the business team and really a, a, a part of that leadership team and indispensable? I think the, the, the key in terms of making sure that we are um, part of the overall strategy, both um, functionally and sort of tactically, uh, is that given, particularly in life sciences, right, given how regulated we are, this is an industry where the old joke is, you can't go to the restroom without a regulation applying, right? <laughs> and yet you need I hadn't to, heard that one, but <laughs> I agree. Like, it is so regulated, and in that respect, right, there's, there's a fair amount of need to, to get advice. And integrating oneself, whether it's from a clinical trial or um, sitting on a leadership team for one of, a, for one of the business units, really uh, offers the opportunity to make sure that we're a part of the conversation um, and that we're not just viewed as the lawyers. We're not viewed as the cops. We're really viewed as hey, we're a business counselor. What are you trying to accomplish? And how are we going to get there? 
right? Um, and as I've, I guess I've been doing this coming up on 25 years, as I've sort of mentored in-house lawyers, that's probably the biggest thing that when they start, they need to sort of get out of this mentality of just being a lawyer, being yeah, able to and, recite what the law says. Yeah, and, and Brian, you know, we, we know your CEO, Vin Milano, very well, and he, he regards you as a solutions-oriented counsel. And, you know, we've talked about this regarding Rachel as well. Uh, you know, lawyers, in-house lawyers who are able to help find solutions for what right. the business is trying to accomplish rather than just identifying the, the ten reasons that you can't do something. Right. I, had a, I, had a, I had a great uh, person. I, I went from private practice at Morgan Lewis to Merck. Um, and in my orientation, I met with uh, what was going to be one of my clients. And she said, look, anybody can be Dr. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's pretty easy. Just say no. Um, the, real, the real trick is what are people trying to accomplish and what do you, you know, how are you going to get there? Um, 99% of the time, people have the right in- intention, right? And, yeah, yeah. And you're going to get there. Right. Well, you know, Brian, you, you graduated uh, from school with a, a bachelor's in political science, then went into law school from there. Right. Um, what what steered you toward life sciences? Actually, maybe before that, sure. you were telling us in the green room a, a story about when you passed the bar and you notified family members. Sure. Can you just recount that sure. story for, for sure. our audience? Sure. So um, it, it's 1996. I, <laughs> I just graduated um, I'm, I'm in a clerkship, and my friend uh, happened to know the results of the bar and, and called me and said, do you want to know? And I said, absolutely, I want to know. Um, and he said, well, you passed. And I was so excited. <laughs> and you can, you can <laughs> yeah, share in my delight, me, Rachel. It is the best feeling. Um, so I said, thanks. Hung up the phone. Called my mom. I said, mom, mom, I, I have news for you. I passed the bar. <laughs> and she's like, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. And then silence. And then on the other end, it was, well, when are you going to go to medical school? <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to put this law degree to good use? <laughs> <laughs> medical school. When are you going to do something important? Exactly. Well, what, what did steer you toward the life sciences? You know, it's funny. Um, it wasn't your mother. It was, it was not my mother. <laughs> and neither of my parents are, are, are in life science. Uh, for me, it was a little bit of happenstance. Um, I was a young lawyer at Morgan, uh, I guess, in 2000. I was working on a a fairly significant healthcare bankruptcy case called Allegheny Health. Sure. Out in Pittsburgh. Yep. Um, I saw sort of, of course, all the things that were associated in the litigation, but more importantly, the importance of what uh, institutions like Allegheny did for patients. And the, sort of, I think, subliminally and on more of a conscious level, I, it, was, it was something that I naturally sort of gravitated toward. Then my neighbor, my work neighbor at Morgan, left um, Morgan Lewis to go to Merck about a year before I left. And about six months after he left, he said, hey, there's an opening at the company. Would you be interested? And, of course, I had no interest in leaving, right? I was, I was six years in, I guess, at the time, um, really enjoying, you know, my training at, at Enjoying at maybe Morgan. an overstatement in a private <laughs> law firm. <laughs> Loving every minute of it. Every night, every weekend. <laughs> yeah, right. and, um, and, you know, once I sort of dipped the toe in the water, sort of learned a lot about Merck, it was, it was a no-brainer. And that was, my, that was the first in-house job, uh, I guess, in 2002. What was the hardest part of your transition from a law firm 
to in-house? That's a great question. Um, there are so many. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they could be great learnings for people, really. <laughs> it certainly was not keeping track of billable hours. <laughs> <laughs> God, if we could only do away with that. <laughs> I know. Um, for me, I, I think the hardest was, as a litigator, you're taught and trained to fight all the issues, right? And yeah, when you go in-house, and I was on the regulatory side over, over at Merck, um, so there's much less opportunity to sort of be confrontational. It's, it, we're all swimming in the same direction, right? We're all in the same boat. And to that end, I think we're trying to make sure that the company is, is uh, steered in the right direction. But that being said, um, I think the biggest transition was sort of finding my voice, which is sort of a weird thing to say, but it's finding how do you, how can you um, find your way to counsel people to get them in the right direction and you helping them and feeling like you're part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I think that can be a real challenge for lawyers, right? Absolutely. You're you're trying to overcome the thought that you're Dr. No, right. that you're too conservative, right. but you're also trying to make sure that you're advocating your position, they're taking you seriously, they're listening to you, yeah. and finding that balance, especially as a more junior lawyer, right. it can be can be difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, but you know what, Brian, that that's not unique to in-house lawyers. No. So public relations people face the same thing, Absolutely. corporate communications people, finance. even finance, that's a good, that's finance a good point. people. So it, is there anything for our audience, any, any uh, guidance or tip you can give them who are in similar, what arguably are support functions, yep. right? Yep. Um, how, how, yeah, how, did right. You, how did you find your voice? I didn't realize it at the time. Right, and I, I don't want to pretend like I was sort of smarter than than it was than I was, but there there was a um, there was an opportunity to uh, particularly at Merck when you when you joined uh, to have a sort of a long orientation period, and that orientation period was relatively informal, at least for me, um, and you read a lot and you listened a lot. So there was a little bit less of, oh, you got to jump right into the deep end and be the lawyer for Zocor, right, one of our products. Um, You really sort of had the opportunity to learn, and the colleagues there were so incredibly supportive, right? Because a lot of of the regulatory stuff that we did didn't have sort of precedent of this is the way you have to do it. And the regulations, of course, this is what's beautiful about our industry – the regulations aren't exactly black and white. There's tons of gray in between. And, um, you know, sort of being able to understand that and listen and learn, learning the business, really learning the business, um, is important. Not just the people, but the products, manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately the commercialization. That, that to me, was sort of the way to get um, as integrated as quickly as possible. And don't get me wrong, it still took a couple of years. Oh, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So how has your voice changed over time? Because you started off as a litigator, right? You're now general counsel, corporate secretary, taking on the large corporate portion. And our voices, they change, and we usually become more effective. How has your journey through that changed, and what shaped you? Uh, I'm a lot meaner now. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) I knew it right away. Um. I, I think, you, you know, the, the more senior one becomes, I think there is an opportunity to continue to learn and guide, but I feel like it gets a touch more, 
um, tricky sometimes when you don't know sort of all the constituents, but you still have to sort of navigate where you need to go. So for me, my vo- the voice, if you will, like we were talking about at the beginning, um, has changed to being less sort of, oh, this is the, here's the issue, let me give you the advice, and we'll be on our merry way. Um, To me, it is, well, here's the issue, can we agree on the issue? Sure. And then afterwards, it turns into a lot of, at least for me, has turned into a lot of questions. I'll be asking a lot of the questions. So how are we, you know, what direction do we want to go? And you sort of use questions to steer a conversation to potentially the desired outcome, right? And that that has been, that's a little tricky. That's right? a and great that takes skill. A lo- well, it takes that's a long a time. That's a great skill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it, it it's also very uh, easy to tie some anecdotes to that. Yeah, for sure. So can you give us an example of where, uh, maybe, maybe two examples. One where your style and your approach really worked well. Sure. Uh, and an example where it didn't work so well sure. and you wish you could have a do-over. Sure. Um, so I'll start with the not so well. <laughs> Hopefully so our You have one and only time that that happened. <laughs> I'd like a mulligan, please. Yeah. <laughs> one and only time this week. Yeah. Uh, perhaps so that our, our listeners can sort of learn from. Like uh, early in my career, somebody came to me with a proposal which sounded terrific. Um, and I did not necessarily take the advice of the don't be doctor, no. But it, to me, while the, while the intent was certainly bona fide, um, I, I took a you've got to be kidding me approach. Um, there's a little bit of – it didn't go well, obviously. This is the point of the story. Um, there's a little bit of knowing your audience. And I should have spent the time – trying to understand the audience and the why and explaining the why better for sure Mm -hmm. um i think there can be a lot of impatience that's sort of in our business people want to go fast and and uh if i had spent a little bit more time getting to let's just call him bob the client um i think we would have had a a slightly better result um Maybe go to lunch with that person, right? Try to get to know them, relate to them on some level. I think that helps a lot, much more than I think. Well, I think we sometimes take granted, take that stuff for granted. That oh, they're ju- we're just a colleague. We all work for the same company. We're all going to be fine. Um, so that's one story. And the other anecdote about sort of getting to uh, a a a, um, a positive result is. Sometimes leading people to um, leading people to a point where they see why you're giving a certain piece of advice. I'm trying not to give away too much of of, uh, of the story, but giving them a little bit of a sense as to what's important uh, and why legally it's important. Um, so we had a in, in my old company we had a, um, a circumstance in which we were trying to get reimbursement for a product. And, you know, sending out information in advance, but then using the personal relationships to give them a sense of how important it was legally. And we use this, this, this reimbursement issue um, was important to the company, but it also carried legal risks. And 
I, I, for me, used the sort of scale of, hey, this is on a 1 to 10, and I'll, I'll very rarely use a 10. This is a 9 in terms of legal importance. Because clients legal don't... Importance legal, legal importance? Legal risk. Legal risk. Yeah. Legal risk. Yeah. And using that scale, I think, sometimes gives them a sense of, oh, wait a minute. Bryant doesn't use a 9 very often. Yeah. He gives me a lot of 5s, some 4s and 6s. Nines. Right, and you haven't been a, a doctor, no, right? So right. I think when you use the nine, right. it's helpful because people Absolutely. understand the, the gravity right. of it. Yeah. Right. Being also very careful, by the way, not to use the 10. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not going to use them. I'm going to throw the red flag very often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And how, how could you apply those principles th- those are leadership principles as sure. well sure so h- how would you define your leadership style with that as backdrop um I-, I think the leadership style question is is one that evolves certainly over time um i i think yo- young professionals not not necessarily lawyers if they were you were to use a leadership style that is for someone who's 25 years into the industry would be a little bit different at their age, right? So I think some of it comes with time and some of it has to be super personal, right? It has to be your own and everybody has their own. Um, And I think that's a great point. When you see people trying to impersonate a leadership style that is not theirs, it is quickly evident that Obvious, they're not comfortable yeah. Right, yeah. right that they and they they can't impersonate it so i think being true to yourself is huge is is really a yeah. great lesson the one leadership style that i i've learned from from one of my mentors vin milano is um, there is an affability and a humility that's associated with affability um, and humility affability and humility right you, you throw in the joke every once in a while just to put people at ease and even though everybody knows he's the CEO, or in my case, I'm the general counsel, um, there is a humility to it, and you don't necessarily have to bring down, oh, but I'm the, I'm the general counsel, and this is what I said, and this is the way it has to be. And those two principles have, have helped more often than they've hurt, that's for sure. Yeah. We've heard humility in some of our other podcasts and, you know, being humble as as great leadership principles. And I think it's especially true with lawyers. Perhaps they're not always the best crew to have as much humility. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think the other piece of it is, you know, that I see in in younger lawyers, too, is, you you know, you don't need to punch someone in the face and show that you're right. right. It's okay if nobody knows it's your idea or you don't get the credit for it. To your point, how you navigate that sometimes is through making them understand this is my idea. Right. This is my great, you know, solution. Who cares how you're getting them there? Right. But having the humility and being humble and allowing them to get there in that way, it's a skill. No, nothing gives me greater pride than in a meeting someone's like, all right, so we've we've come up with this great idea. And it, they pitch it as their own. Exactly. And it's and I'm sort of in the back of the room. I have a wry smile on the perfect. But you've seen those people, whether it be lawyers or elsewhere, where it has to be their idea, right? right? It's almost like, well, wait a second. I need credit for it. I need attribution. You know, I think it gets back to that, you know, being a good leader is often being not humble. requiring that. Right. Put the spotlight on others. Um, so you mentioned Vin Milano. Who are some of the other leaders or 
individuals who shaped your career and your perspective on being a leader? Uh, certainly, Vin um, has been a, a big influence on my life and my professional and personal life. Um, y- you know, my I had a boss. And, and just to back up there, you sure. worked with Vin where you are now, oh, but right. also at VirePharma, yeah, right? Virapharma, so yeah. you were at VirePharma, then you went to Insight, and then he recruited. He must have recruited you back with Idera, right? He did. Okay. Yes. That's. Um, and it, it sort of goes to a different point that I, I know you, it wasn't part of your question, Chris, but um, in this industry. And it goes without saying, and I'm sure your, your other guests must have, have alluded to this. This industry is so small, not just Pennsylvania, right? But people in San Diego and, and uh, Boston, everybody knows everybody. And sort of wanting to work with the people that you've worked with in the past um, is both a compliment and makes work seemed less like work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's so great to have the ecosystem that we have here to be able to sort of go back and know know some of the players and have good relationships with them, sometimes not, and um, and be, be really able to um, thrive in, in, a, in a system like ours. But back to your question, um, Chris, w- one of my – one of my um, – other mentors was my boss at Insight. So I was hired at Insight as um, a chief compliance officer, as the chief compliance officer. Um, And he, his name is Eric Siegel, and he was the general counsel who hired me to be um, the chief compliance officer. Um, He demonstrated a lot of attributes that I try to emulate, one of them being flexibility. Right. We don't need to sort of pigeonhole ourselves into spots. And being a chief compliance officer from time to time can be that sort of doctor no. The flexibility that Eric demonstrated with me is that I didn't stay in the compliance role for terribly long. I was there for two and a half years, um, particularly as the company was globalizing. And then I moved into um, a vice president of, with, with legal responsibility for the Americas. And that was a that was a terrific opportunity, but it gave me that flexibility, gave me the ability to not just do sort of a chief role, but at the same time get additional experience um, back to sort of the legal side. Um, and and it's something that I've sort of been able to to sort of bring into my practice in thinking about the people that report to me that we want to give them flexibility, that they're not just sort of stuck in one role forever. Interesting. You mentioned earlier um, in your career path that you were getting into arguably one of the most highly regulated industries, right? Uh, you have to go to the, you have to check the regulations before you use the restroom. Uh, and that, that's from a pharmaceutical industry perspective, sure. obviously. Right. But also the four companies that you've been with since leaving Morgan Lewis have all been publicly traded companies right. too. So that's a whole other layer. Absolutely. So what what cautions, I guess, or advice would you have for CEOs of startups who were thinking about going public? Just from the the the, the going public, the IPO process, the you know being a public company generally. Any any thoughts about that? I, I, I you, did, you've been a, a you know global all, giants like Merck, right? Right. To real startups, all public companies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. but all all public. Um, I, I would say going public um, 
as I've sort of taught in my at my class in Villanova, is is almost critical, is almost essential for the narrow issue of having ap- access to capital markets. Mm. Absolutely, but with that, of course, with all that benefit of being able to being able to tap capital, um, comes with a whole heck of a lot of responsibility, right? Um, from material non-public information to getting into a cycle, and what I mean by that is. Everybody has to understand that four times a year, around the same time every quarter, it's going to be Q and K time. It's going to be quarterly reporting time. Are we going to do a press release? Are we? Gonna... And all those things come with it. The agility. Which of course is why you need to raise the capital to pay for those things. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a reason, in other words, that those that that all sits together. Obviously, I'm kidding. You're right. Um, the and I think the hard part there is, you know, when when you're running a million miles an hour as a private company, um, you you don't always sort of have to stop and think. All right, do I have a disclosure issue? Are we going to put this mm-hmm. in the queue? Does this go into the K? That kind of stuff, and and that's a, a layer. It's a layer of additional sort of consideration that might sort of slow down a very fast-paced private company. Um, and and we've seen we've seen a lot of those examples where private companies are you know that's not going to be an issue. Well, it is when you're a public company, right? And I think training them before that before they're actually public, right? right? If you have a management team that's seasoned, been through it, right. it's great. If you start off with a public company that has you know some of the top executives who have not been public before, it's right. getting that training in and making sure that they know when they need to be talking to the GC. Okay. Right, because often it's it's that they don't recognize that they're stumbling over something, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that can be a huge challenge for a GC too. Uh, uh, agree, and I would also add that you know obviously having board board members that are that are with public company experiences is awfully helpful. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, with, you know, sort of goes without saying. Absolutely, you know, uh, Brian, we talked a little bit about your political science major, your legal background. My mom. Uh, your mom, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, we won't ask Rachel to tell the story about when she learned she passed the bar, at least not on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but you know, one of our programs that we run throughout the year that IDERA has supported uh, is called Tell Me About Your Job. And the idea of Tell Me About Your Job is to expose students from underrepresented populations in our industry to the various career opportunities that exist in life sciences. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have sure. to have a PhD or an MD to, to, to work in life sciences. So, so what, what advice would you give to a student, uh, and might be a college-age student, postdoc, fellow, you know, a student of any level uh, who's not a scientist? Right. What should they be thinking about in terms of a career in life sciences? Like you and I and, and Rachel have all taken. Sure. Yeah, None of us is a scientist. None of us are scientists, that's for sure. The, I, I think some people, um, myself included, particularly early in my career, got very spooked by the science. But again, going back to that sort of theme in the beginning around relationships, I think it's super important to understand the science. One doesn't need to master it. One doesn't need to diagnose and see patients. For sure, please, God no. <laughs> Your mom wanted you to. Oh, uh, right. To be clear. Um, I think it's really important to try to understand as well as you can the science. Um, the relationship part of that why? is – So for the very reason why clients need to understand sort of the regulatory framework in which we work, 
I think it's important for all stakeholders to understand the science. We had a drug of, uh, for hereditary angioedema at Virapharma with the first, first in class, first product to treat this hor- horrible disease. And understanding essentially replacement therapy um, was central to the, the company and product success. Um, I had to understand that a little bit better. And I was in, I was in the legal function. Right. So, you know, meet with the doctors and say, well, explain to me what what is going on with these patients? Why do they suffer from these attacks so badly? And then the doctors putting it in. And I say I usually use the phrase of, "Okay, talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. And they do. And it really helps everyone understand the science a little bit better so that you can be more articulate in whatever function you are. If you're in the legal side, public mm-hmm. affairs, um, in the finance side, you got to understand at least some level of the science. It's not it, – this is going to sound terrible. It's not rocket science. <laughs> well, and I think it's the other rocket piece – It's not rocket surgery. It's not right. rocket surgery. <laughs> the, the other piece, getting back to the public company, is if you don't understand – the science as well, you can't understand the issue, which means you can't properly give advice on disclosure. I so I find that, you know, for life sciences lawyers doing public company work or doing some of the M&A work, in order for them to really do a good job, right. they have to understand what they're talking about to understand the issue to get to the complicated, how do we disclose Absolutely. it? Yeah, and, and it, it really does apply across functional areas. Yeah public affairs people, the lobbyists, the communications people, they need to be conversational Absolutely. in the science to talk about what the opportunity is, what the challenges might be, you know, what so the policies are necessary in order to be effective. So, yeah. true. So, so I know we only have time for one last question. So, Brian, what do you wish you knew 10 years ago that you know, now know? Another great question for me. Um, this industry is littered with failures. And what I wish, and that's, that's sort of an obvious statement. What I wish Products, I- not people. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And that inevitability is something that you should not shy away from. It's part of it, um, being prepared for it, particularly trained as a lawyer, like we're, we're prepared for sort of worst case scenario. Being prepared for failure and its inevitability will make you only a better professional. And that I wish I knew 10 years ago or understood better, right? The, the road in this business from, uh, from phase one to approval is littered with failures. And we, embracing that, understanding mm-hmm. it, um, understanding why only makes every professional a little bit better and makes our business a little bit better every single time. Yeah, we've heard from several of our guests about the importance of perseverance, uh, you know, intestinal fortitude, the, you know, the passion, uh, you know, just relentless pursuit of that solution for the patients and for the business. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I think that's, that's so true um, with the, with sort of a, a addition of Everybody can be a little bit more curious about everything in our business, right? The, it is such a vast and terrific business in that sense that if you are insatiably curious, you will still never be bored because you'll still have something to learn about in this business, which is terrific. Well, that's great advice. 
Yeah, great, great point. Well, thank you, Bryant, for your time. You're welcome. Uh, absolutely terrific great, discussion. Great to be here. Very insightful. Uh, and a great perspective, again, from a non-scientist and, and you know, from someone other than the CEO, uh, but obviously a key counselor, not only you personally, but that role within a company. The general counsel is a very important role uh, as, a, as a business partner. Thank you, Chris. And you know, having the solutions and not just being Dr. No or giving the 10 reasons you can't do something, but coming up with solutions, that, that's obviously critically important. Uh, so thank you again for your time. Rachel, thank you for your time. And for our listeners, that does conclude this podcast. But remember to visit the show notes, which can be found at lifesciencespa.org in the podcast section of our website. Again, that's lifesciencespa.org. And send any questions to membership at lifesciencespa.org. Uh, thank you. We will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.